Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Thank you for joining us on this month's Travel Around Table discussion, where we cover everything from travel logistics to social issues to environmental and animal conservation and cultural diversity. Before we get started today, if you're listening to this and you yourself are a travel expert or involved in a travel community and want to join us for a Travel Around Table discussion, please send us an email at thetravelersgroup.gmail.com and we will coordinate with you for a future episode. Today's topic is a is a heavy one. So we are going to get into animal poaching and probably just general animal conservation. But before we get into that discussion, I want to take a moment to introduce my panel members. So first, uh, Carrie, can you please tell us where you're located, how you're involved in anti-poaching and animal conservation efforts, and then where people can find your content, whether it's social media or your website. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, my name's Kerry David. I'm a filmmaker primarily. Um, I got into conservation because I heard about the dire state of animals being poached in Africa. So I decided to find, start a foundation called Over and Above Africa. I went to Africa on a research trip and while I was there meeting incredible, you know, men in conservation, couldn't find any women. And so I decided to make a film on the women on the front line of the poaching walls called Breaking Their Silence. You can, and which is how I met Anne and Nikki. I knew Kelly previously, <laughs> but I met so many incredible women through, through finding this, uh, or should I researching this situation. And you can find me on, my website is overandaboveafrica.com or breakingthersilence.com. And my, uh, Twitter, I think is at trulygirl. And I think my Instagram is at curdavid. <laughs> <And that's me. laughs> All right. Uh, Nikki, what about yourself? Um, my name is Nikki Jakubazi. I'm very happy to be here in the company of these magnificent women. Um, I am the executive director of Trunks Up. Um, it started to support Lex Charlotte, who is a world-renowned conservationist in Asia, bringing to light the issues of the Asian elephant, which is much less known than the poaching issues of the, the African elephant, which is actually a cousin. Um, they have very different um, situation and plight. And I just... After traveling through Asia, wanting to experience the elephants, I realized how difficult it actually is to see them in a natural habitat. It actually is almost impossible. So coming back from that trip, I just felt very moved to help bring to light the issues that go on uh, with these animals in captivity and um, was lucky enough to meet Luck and go on a few adventures with her. And I've just been, it's taken my life this direction and I feel very passionate about it. Um, you can find out more about Trunks Up on jointrunksup.org. And our Instagram is also Trunks Up um, Official. And our Facebook is the same. Trunks Up Thank you. Thank you. Um, my, hi. My name is Anne Ket Taylor. And I live part, I'm from Kenya. And I live part of the year in Kenya. And part of the year in, um, in Montana. And I started 20 years ago, I started a nonprofit um, doing anti-poaching work because I was finding so many animals with terrible injuries from snares and spears and what have you. And that has expanded into doing community work and anti-poaching. So I still have my original team and we work in Kenya's Maasai Mara. My organization is called um, Anne K. Taylor Fund. My website is annektaylorfund.org. And my, if I can remember them, my Facebook is um, Anne K. Taylor Fund. 
and Instagram is the same. Okay. <laughs> Kelly. <laughs> Hi, good morning. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this and having all these incredible women um, on here this morning. I, my history, I've had um, the majority of my career, I've been an actor. Uh, I've probably sold you pretty much every product on television one can sell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, about 12 years ago, I was very involved um, in the nonprofit sector, uh, working with different anti-human trafficking organizations and doing a lot of women's rights work. Um, in 2014, I was serving as ambassador to an organization and I went and I volunteered at Elephant Nature Park, which I'm really glad that Nikki is here to be able to discuss the play of the Asian elephant. We can discuss um, the difference between Asian elephant, African elephant. And after that, I, I made the correlation between human trafficking survivors, not having a voice and uh, elephant abuse and what was going on with them. And I got way more involved with the elephant activism side of things. I'd always loved elephants my whole life, but I hadn't been um, involved with these issues. I dove deeper and deeper and deeper into it and uh, ended up working for two years with the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. It's an anti-poaching unit in Northern Zimbabwe. Um, I'm working currently with Rabia Hawa in Kenya. Uh, I tend to be talking daily with people in Africa <laughs> about poaching. So I'm really excited to be here. Um, right now, people can just follow me on Instagram at Kelly Hazel King. Uh, and then I'll give a little shout out to those other organizations and their, their links later in our talk. And and we will have everything linked in our show notes. So yes. if you're listening to this and you want Thank more information, you. we'll have the websites, we'll have the social media accounts, and that will be accessible uh, in the show notes of the conversation. Uh, and, and before we get started, I want to give a shout out to Christina of The Elephant Project. She was actually the one who put me in contact with Nikki and sort of moved forward from there. Yeah. Uh, and you can listen to our conversation. Uh, she is episode 50, one of our early episodes. Yeah. Very cool. And yeah, Very we, cool. that was a great conversation. <laughs> she is an awesome person. So, all right. Uh, this is, this is a hard conversation to have. And I, I know I'm speaking to the choir here as you all dedicated your lives to it in some way. Um, but in my research for this episode, uh, um, and I found myself really taken back by how how horrible human beings can be, um, how devastating uh, we've been to I, you know, just the environment um, in general, and sort of branching out to every aspect of that. Uh, so uh, I guess maybe a fair warning that the, the, the conversation is going to get pretty sobering at times. So... Um, yeah. And that, this is this is a destruction, not just of, you know, intangible things of purchasing based on environmental destruction. This is direct impact and humans willingly damaging creatures. Yeah. And uh, Carrie, I think maybe we'll start with you and in its, its most basic form. What is animal poaching? Um, it's just profiteering. That's what it is. Um, at the end of the day, animals are slaughtered so that um, we can basically fund syndicates, crime syndicates and mobsters. 
There's no, for commercial post, there's two different types of poaching. So there's subsistence poaching. And I look at that as farm to table. Um, Anne can speak to that much more clearly than I can because she lives in Africa. But we are all, I think, collectively most concerned about commercial poaching um, because it is, there's, there's so much to cover. I think one question sort of makes you jump into certain areas because you want to cover so much. But at the end of the day, um, it's, poaching is sold to poor people. Um, the myth, the myth around the kinds of body parts that are sold, um, and then marketed to poor people to believe that it can cure cancer or it can cure erectile dysfunction. Um, the in, ingenuity of man actually is, is, plays a really big part of this in how they market it, you know, so jumping to erectile dysfunction, because who doesn't want to talk about that? <laughs> um, you know, what they, what they do in Asia is they grind the horn down into a powder and they mix it with Viagra. And then they sell it as rhino horn to men who are suffering from erectile dysfunction. And of course it works because it's Viagra, but they don't know that. So when I say about the ingenuity of mankind, you know, lion bones that they're sold, they're ground down. Um, there's so many body parts. And now I heard that uh, elephants are also being killed for their livers. That's a new thing too. So, so, you know, what is poaching? I think of the whole thing is profiteering. That's what it is. It's devastating our planet and it, it is detrimental to humankind's, um, survival because these animals are our ecology, make up our ecology, especially with, um, elephants and rhinos because they're keystone species. Mm -hmm. Okay. Going this, why do you need to mix rhino horn with, with Viagra? Why not just sell Viagra? Why, why pull the rhino instead? Yeah, why not just it's, you can get say more, it's a rhino horn? Get, because you can get a lot more money. You can charge a lot more money for rhino horn than you can for Viagra. But know? are they I'm are talking. the people buying it actually testing it? Like if you if you're talking about ingenuity of man, you just say it's rhino horn, but it's actually just ground up Viagra. So think about the end user. You know, um, I'll give you a great example. I interviewed an incredible woman in Vietnam called Trang Nguyen, and she was very fortunate. She won a scholarship to Oxford. And while she, she was only young, but while she was there, she got cancer. And so she was able to go to the best hospitals in England. And at the very same time, her grandmother in Vietnam also got cancer. Her grandmother used rhino horn and Trang used the best of Western medicine and Trang lived and her grandmother died. That village, that tiny village in Vietnam, it took the grandmother, the grandmother's children, which was Trang's parents, to put as much money together as they can to afford the rhino horn. Um, and a lot of people are losing their homes. I mean, they're shacks, but that's their homes mm -hmm. because they are sold this false um, bill of goods. Is is animal poaching, like the commercial side of this and the demand for it, primarily an Eastern Asian or Asian market? No. USA is the number two. Is it not, actually, when I did my research, which was two years ago for Breaking Their Silence, USA was the number two buyer of animal wildlife parts, poached animals, wildlife parts. You can break that down as to why America, because it shocks Americans. Yeah. A number. But we have a very large Asian population, which okay. cannot be overlooked. We also, I believe, have the largest, Americans are the worst for trophy hunting. You know, we have a lot of money in America. They want to go to Africa and they want to shoot large animals or endangered animals around the world and bring them home because we're allowed to bring them home, unfortunately. And hopefully with the new administration, those laws will tighten. So no, it's not just, you know, it's a mis it's a misnomer to say that. And I was okay. interviewing um Ashley 
a friend of mine, Ashley McCavey, who just turned Vermont into an ivory-free state. You can no longer sell ivory um, or animal parts from 15 endangered species because of the work that Ashley and her community did over eight years. And she told me that America is now number one. So, really? you know, number one, number two, mm. it's a, it, we're a huge part of the problem. Okay. Yeah, you have to remember, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toss in just a, a couple of things here. One, with rhino horn specifically, it's very much a status symbol. So not only, um, not only do you bring in the ED stuff, but you also bring in just parties, even like, you know, grinding it up and snorting it, you know, almost, almost akin to, to cocaine at a party. You know what I mean? Um, some of that is changing, um, but all of this is really deeply ingrained cultural beliefs and traditions, right? So as we go along, um, ending this is really going to take uh, changing the way people think. And it's been hundreds of thousands of years. So I just also want to make sure that your audience understands a rhino horn and and um, the people are poaching rhino for that. And then obviously ivory tusks uh, from elephants. And then you have a myriad of, of illegal wildlife trafficking that happens, mm -hmm. right? And in America, uh, what Carrie also is talking about and the, the importance of each state having their own laws against this. With Americans, it's also about... Um, of course, money and greed, right? So let's say Vermont um, makes it illegal to to trade in in illegal, you know, wildlife um, uh, trafficking. It becomes a whack-a-mole effect across the country. If you don't have each state doesn't have its own laws, so if Vermont stops, someone else can pop up and start selling it. I actually went down the rabbit hole one night on eBay and was able to find um, rhino horn being sold on eBay. And they'll, they'll mask it also with ivory, um, calling it mammoth ivory um, from Canada. And, um, you know, so someone could be innocently thinking, oh, wait, well, this it's OK. This is elephant. It's not, you know, it's not coming out of Canada. And and that's not true. It is. And, and, uh, yeah, you can, you can go down the rabbit hole and find some, wow. some of this, but we'll take really understand that it actually is happening. I think Carrie was absolutely right. I think Americans are usually shocked to know, but just recently there was a huge bus done in San Diego. Um, so people have, yeah, they think Americans are innocent on this. It's not just the, the Asian countries. So. Wow. Yeah, I'll admit that I, I did. I would never have guessed that America was um, even in the top five, to be honest. I, no. I just didn't did know. Um, so it seems like there are two fronts to this, this fight against poaching. You have the actual people performing the act of poaching and the need to protect those animals on the ground at the location, and then the lack of education, which is sort of the foundation and the reason that these animal, animals are being poached in the first place. Is there... Is there a front line that is more important is do you think it's it's more dire to maybe go and, and perform the education and provide better opportunity for the people who are purchasing these items and the realization that modern medicine is, is the way to go and there really isn't a need for these things and and maybe as a result the industry would then die off and do you want to talk about that from like being in africa yeah i, I certainly can can talk about that, um, not not about Asia, but certainly about Africa. I think it's terribly important uh, to have boots on the ground, to use an overused phrase, um, because without that, then you're going to have no animals to save. 
Mm-hmm. And this is one of the most difficult things for those of us that are on the front line. And thank you, Carrie, for in, in, including me in your film. That was, that was fantastic. <laughs> one of my um, favorite parts. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but if you don't have people protecting them on the ground, then it, you don't have anything to save, number one. Number two, um, you know, what I've realized over the years I've been doing the anti-poaching, you absolutely must have community input and involvement. Because otherwise we're coming in and I'm a Kenyan. Um, so, you know, I am of the country, but still you've got people. I'm a privileged Kenyan. So you have people coming in and telling them what to do, what not to do. So you have to have the community involved and, um, have them realize. And I work with the Maasai tribe and it's very difficult to have them understand when they have millions of animals around them that actually they're threatened. And so my, you know, I, I do, I built schools and work in, you know, I try and do education along with helping women. I've got women's groups, everything to provide another source of income from bushmeat, which is the most, uh, the bushmeat is the most, um, lucrative form. It's, it's as lucrative as the drug, drug trade and harder to pin down. Um, wow. does that cover it a little bit? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and I think to, to Bob's question is, uh, the, so it is, it is very evident that we need boots on the ground to help protect against poaching and the killing of animals and then the trafficking of either the body parts or the live animals themselves. But on the flip side of that, uh, I think education of people that it, that the market is, is also maybe equally important so that, that there is no market or a lack thereof and then it starts to diminish and then that reduces the demand for it and the actual amount of poaching decreases. Yeah, in fact, speaking, so, so pangolins are the most, right now, they're the most trafficked mammal in the world and a lot of people don't even know what a pangolin is. Um, we were fortunate enough to film them uh, in Breaking Their Silence um, and in speaking with Hong Wang and she's in Vietnam and she's at the forefront of educating and bringing awareness to the Vietnamese people, they were really successful in getting Vietnamese celebrities involved. And because of the work that um, they did, and she's with changevietnam.org, I believe. And because of that, um, what the women here were being sold, that pangolin scales, if you rub them on your nipples, it will help the milk flow for a newly uh, new mothers who have, were struggling with that. Well, it doesn't do that, clearly. <laughs> so what they were doing is they were starting at the ground level and actually speaking two mothers who were struggling with it, giving them the correct medicine to fix it. And then those mothers were going to the hospitals and telling new mothers, don't buy pangolin scales, it doesn't work. So you had ground floor awareness, which is that education that the actual mothers who were affected coming in and speaking to new mothers. And then you had that celebrity factor, which, you know, we know through influences the world over. You can't be a celebrity coming in and helping. Um, that really amplifies it enormously. I guess one of my questions is, do you find that the internet with all of its vast resources is helpful or hurtful in combating this? That's a tough question. I mean, that's a good got, question. Yeah, it's a great question because you have so many, look at the museum and, and, and their platforms and their networks doing so much good, you know, and then you have other, you've got, you've got the women in fashion wearing fur and flaunting fur. And, you know, I love Post Malone, but he's got this song about buying an $80,000 mink. Um, I, I think they probably cancel each other out, to be honest. Mm. 
They probably do because on the one hand, you know, the internet gives access to all of these things and underground network to be able to be exporting illegally and all of that. On the flip side, you have awareness, even you guys doing this podcast and being able mm -hmm. to get the message out. So Carrie's probably right. It, they, they cancel. There's good, there's pluses and minuses to both, right? Yeah. I, I will tell you this, like when, when you haven't been to Africa yet, like when you're here and you, you learn of this horrific, the numbers of animals that you love so much, you think, oh, well, I'm just going to go there and see what I can do to help. And then you get to Africa and it's like, I'm on Mars. What you thought you know, you know nothing when you land yeah. in Africa for what's actually happening there. Uh, when I started over and above Africa, I, we, we've now been, um, it's been three years this year. And I realized looking back what we've been doing, which I thought was what we was needed was that we were triaging. Okay. So we were medical supplies and actually got bicycles to ranges up in the Northern Kruger because they were on foot everywhere. I mean, but mm -hmm. when you look back, it was triaging. So now that we've had time in the field, what we've realized is actually impactful is working with the communities, which Anne does amazingly. And we show that in our film. I learned so much from being with Anne in the Mara and all of the women that she works with. And Anne, you should talk about your beading, you know, program too, which is, is just phenomenal. We were so lucky to be able to capture that festival they had. Um, but if you don't have the communities working with you, nothing's going to happen. And the thing, one of the biggest things I learned when I went out there was, you know, you sit, you sit here in America and you think, how could you not want to preserve the rhino? It's prehistoric. It's, it's magnificent. And the elephant, like they're magnificent sentient beings. When you go to Africa, most African children will not see any of the big five because they're on game reserves, which only rich white people can go to. So learning that, which for us was a learning curve, we now have programs whereby we fund rhino dehornings and we bring school children from that area to the rhino dehorning so they can watch the whole thing and be told by their own community why it's being done. And we hope through that that they will have an ownership of their animals because they're there and it's their future. And so I can say we own them too because we love them so much. But at the end of the day, they're right there. And that's what we realized is important is that we now can do programs that support the community and in turn, they will then protect their wildlife. Two things. Uh, one, I think, I think a lot of this applies to most things in human nature is that if it's intangible, you tend not to care as much. And if it doesn't impact you directly, you tend not to care as much. The second thing is you talked about dehorning of rhinos as an actual act and learning experience for children. Can you explain what that is and why it's done? Yes. So rhinos are killed for their horns. Their horns are made up of keratin. They have literally no medicinal value whatsoever. But at one point, a rhino horn was worth the, the only thing more expensive on the planet was weapon grade plutonium. So that'll give you an idea of why people risk so much to get that rhino horn. At any, wow. at any cost. And while, while we were traveling, filming Breaking Their Silence, it dawned on me that the men that fund terrorism and mafia, you know, they're like syndicates, crime syndicates, mafia, they also fund drugs and human trafficking. So that's who you're dealing with. And I realized because there are now so few rhino, they were not only killing the, the rhinos and taking the horn, which they do in a most barbaric way, because some of those rhinos still live for, for days and weeks afterwards with massive injuries, but they were killing rhinos so that there would ultimately be no rhino left, and then that makes the horn invaluable. 
because you can't mm. get it anymore. So they are trying to drive rhinos into extinction. And I think for me, that was my lowest point in filming Breaking My Silence. Okay. Yeah. And so I just want to, I just want to make the point that the, the dehorning of a rhino is done intentionally in a safe environment and it's health. It's not harmful to the rhino. It's and, not harmful, but, but, but it's controversial because there's two, two rules of thought. There's those that say, leave the rhino alone. Mm-hmm. Don't take it on. How dare you? And, you know, I think ultimately we all would, would do that. But then there's those of us who say, but I'd rather see rhino on our planet. And if that means right now, dehorning them so they can at least exist, then that's where we fall into. But, you know, some of them do die in the process of bringing them down. You know, they're prehistoric animals. There's still a learning curve as to how to treat them. Mm. And some of them don't come out of the anesthetic, much like humans. I mean, you use it, you do lose a few, few humans that way too. So yeah. it's not, it, um, it's not painful to them, but it's also not foolproof. Okay. In, in your film, didn't, uh, they also inject the horn with something that would make it harmful. So Dr. Lorinda Hearn, uh, she came up with this uh, formula that if you inject it into the horn, uh, it doesn't affect the rhino at all, but it's lethal to humans, really, really toxic to humans. Um, and I think it hasn't quite taken off yet. I'm not sure why. But what I love about it is that if you post something on a game reserve that some of the rhino have been treated with this highly toxic formula, it's enough to make that poacher think, yikes, I don't know which one it is. Maybe I'll go to the next uh, game reserve. But it's like Kelly said, then it becomes whack-a-mole. Then, then you're just moving the problem over to another game reserve. Yeah. But one of the vets in our recent uh, Over and Above Africa videos did say that on the private game reserves, over 90% have been saved because they dehorned them and they were not then subject to poachers. Okay. I, I want to uh, focus on the communities a little bit. And because something that you, you hear over and over again among mm-hmm. Americans that maybe Americans is to don't know is that when you have an American go to I wonder Africa, which example you're thinking of. <laughs> go go, <laughs> go to Africa and, and hunt these animals, they always come back and say, Well, you know, all the money I spent goes directly into helping the community and if it weren't for my money these people would starve, or the community would, would falter, whatever whatever excuse they come up with. Can we discuss that? Please? Conservation hunting and trophy hunting. I, I did some research on this because I, <laughs> I wanted to get a good conversation going. I have so much to say, but you guys, you take it, and I'll come in at the end because I'm hogging it, and I don't want to. So, so yeah. I... I, I've told Bob this. I, I spent uh, six weeks study abroad in Tanzania near a national park, and it was a very rural area. So we we ended up going to um, oh, Makumi National Park, which is south of – it's more central of Tanzania. So it's not the big Serengeti, but it still has the big five. And we talked with the park rangers there about conservation hunting, and there is a very mixed response to it still – and honestly, I don't know where I fall because I feel like we're kind of in a really gray area in our timeline as humans of is this a is this a measure that we can at least temporarily save species through the use of like the conservation of them to kill them sustains them. And then the money, which is supposedly close to 200 million a year to South African nations that support trophy hunting 
does that money actually go towards conserving other animals? And then, but if that were true, Alex, yeah, if that were true, then we wouldn't have animals on the edge of extinction because apparently trophy hunting is saving them from extinction. Well, clearly not because we have animals on the. In fact, more animals are being introduced every day. People will be surprised. Giraffe are on the, you know, critically endangered. People don't know that. You know, it's um, okay. I'm just going to say this. When I was in Africa, I brought that question up. How mm-hmm. much of the money? So let's just say, on average, and I'm sure this changes depending on um, how much you know how many tourists are allowed to go over there. But it's about forty thousand dollars per permit to go take. Let's just say take an elephant down. Yep. That forty thousand dollars that goes into the the person who owned who sold that license, right? And mm-hmm. some of that goes to the government, and some of it goes to the guy who owns the game reserve. The only way that community benefits is that the game reserve stays open so you can still be a cook and you can still be a waiter and you can still be someone who goes and makes up the bed and tends to the tourists. But do you get a percentage of that profit? No, you don't. Mm. So that's it in a nutshell. I can okay. speak in days about that. So uh, the one, the other item I wanted to ask is, is there benefit? Uh, I don't think it's in every situation, but I guess some conservation hunting is to allowed to kill older male species that are no longer reproducing. Mm-hmm. They don't I, do that though, do they, Anne? No, Take it. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, please. I, I, I feel terribly strongly about this because, yeah. uh, because that is always the argument and I get mm-hmm. into ter- terrible punch-ups with people that come and tell me that because what they do, they don't, they're not always very honorable. Number one, number two, when they take the biggest and the best, then it leaves big vacuums in, in the, in, in whichever species it is. Um, and with lions, for example, if you kill big, big male lion and then a bunch of cubs are going to get killed by infanticide because another, mm. another male lion will come in. So it's terrible. In my opinion, it's terribly detrimental. And as Kerry said, not a lot of the money goes to the communities. And mm. so to me, it's a, it's something that people love to kill and they'll make any excuse to do it. Yeah, yeah. something that always bothers me with this is the excuse that their humans are somehow helping this animal yeah. population that has been thriving for, you know, well before humans even existed. And it's like these, these animal populations suddenly need our help to survive. Like that, that, that makes no sense to me. Um, and, yeah. And so going back to the financials of it, it, it's there is of the actual GDP of certain countries, it's typically less than 0.1% of the total GDP for trophy hunting. And of the actual tourism money, it's usually around 3%. So it seems like tourism is still ultimately a better way to conserve and protect the animals. And there is a a great difference between conservation and preservation. Conservation is just the sustenance of it, sustenance of it. And preservation is actually letting them be and not touching them. Yes. And to Mm -hmm. your point, my friend Nick Brandt started Big Life in Kenya and they ran a survey on the life of an elephant. <laughs> I got this very wrong on CNN, by the way, but I was super nervous. Um, <laughs> but basically, to get a license to kill an elephant is roughly $40,000. But the photographic um, benefit of keeping that elephant on that game reserve so that tourist after tourist can take photos and it could be you know, part of that allure to get tourists there, mm-hmm. that elephant can make $4 million over its lifetime. Oh, wow. Wow. Exactly, right? So the... Yeah. All, and this comes back to that man's ingenuity at marketing. Yeah. So that's, you know, what, however they can spin it to get their jollies off by going out there and killing a young bull. There's no joy for a hunter to kill 
a big old elephant that can barely move. So when they tell you that, it's a lie. And that's yeah. in my opinion, but it's also proven. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's interesting. That, that, that comes back to uh, man's need for short-term gain, short-term financial gain over long-term sustainability and and preserving something for the next person that comes along. And we see that, um, I mean, in America more than anywhere else. And in almost every industry, you have certain people who think about today and maybe tomorrow only without any any regard for the future. Yeah. It's just... Bob, you brought up Cecil earlier, not not directly, but I the, no, kind of directly. Yeah. <laughs> the dentist that ended up getting the permit to kill Cecil paid fifty thousand for it, and he was not charged criminally criminally at all, even though there were prosecutions against him and the two guides that took him, and they ended up all being dismissed. You know, the one thing I'll say. Um, about that. And I know that um, I think for animal activists to be, to be, for all of us to keep our eye on the prize and be successful at this, um, I'm interested in solutions. And I think it's a, it's a very sticky subject. In fact, um, someone last night sent me um, a whole article about this and a bunch of celebrities that are being skewered because they've been promoting, you know, no hunting, no hunting. The thing is, I just, and this is gonna be a little controversial, but I'll, I'll just toss it in there because then it really touches on the importance of what Anne is doing is, um, is you know, when Cecil did happen, um, there were massive amounts of communities of right around there that went hungry for months. So the real benefit is the food, right? So so what happens is is like they 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 go, they do a hunt, and usually on that hunt they are required to give the community a certain amount of animals for food, right? It all comes. That's the that's really the only way these people get supported, right? Um, when Cecil was killed after that, because it was such a controversial thing and no one was going in there, there were, there were a lot of communities that really got, were hurting, uh, to me. And when it comes down to solutions is we really need to find, um, more ways to put the power back into the people's hands so that they can be the people in the driver's seat, not people, not, you know, white people coming in and showing them, you know, what to do, really allowing them to have the economic benefits themselves. So to me, I get a little bit torn about it because, and the big thing is, is that we, we can't quite yet go, okay, no, no hunt, no trophy hunting, um, and then leave all these people suffering. There needs to be, um, there needs to be a gradual transition, uh, but wherein the people are given the the power and the opportunity to um, have the economic benefits for themselves to survive. Otherwise, there's like this: you can't just go no hunting and leave all these people abandoned. So, like yeah. with the community development is so so crucial, and that's why, yeah, and. I want to I want to toss this over to you because it speaks so much the importance of what you're doing. Well, this is something that I realized very quickly once I started doing the anti-poaching work that you couldn't do as you're saying, Kelly, it wasn't hunting, but it was illegal hunting. And I realized that the community obviously was killing a lot of food, for uh, a lot of animals for subsistence. But then there was also the commercial aspect. So I realized that there would, it would not be successful unless I found alternative ways of the community to earn money. And without that, then you're going to fail, which is why I, you know, 
myself with my my project i've got women's groups because when you when you empower women um it really you know they take good care of the money and they take good care of the community the men will go and buy another wife and excuse me to the men but they'll go and buy another wife or more mm. cows and so you know the women will use their money for the community benefit and um in my case we've got the feeding project um i partnered with the kenya government to empower rural women and uh making beaded stuff which the government was then going to um to sell overseas and it's had relative success but um not as much as i would have hoped on a private side i've got other women's projects making beads uh, making beaded bracelets and other stuff and then i've got a women's project making soap because liquid soap that they can sell we taught them how to keep books we taught them how to how to market it and i i always want them to be self sufficient not with me as a sort of benefactor obviously i have to do so at the beginning and then i've got another group making sanitary pads for girls because um which i pay them for and then we give them to the girls in schools otherwise otherwise they miss school uh, for a week mm-hmm. and so they're not on a, a playing equal playing field and now now with this covid i'm having them making masks now those projects are all within the local communities and for the men i protect livestock enclosures to prevent predation which then keeps their investment with their cattle um intact as much as possible we've got a 99.6% i'm not a scientist but the scientist <laughs> tells me um tells me that it's it's that um that successful so you know going to to Kelly's point it's it's incredibly important to have the involvement and support of the community without which we can't we would not be successful the other thing um and i don't mean to hog it but the other thing that i wanted to say was a lot of the hunting you know we've been talking about um hunting for trophies what i deal mostly with is bushmeat and that's something that very few people speak about because when i started doing it 20 years ago nobody knew about it except in central africa um with the primates but it's it's everywhere everywhere and as i say as i said earlier it's hugely lucrative and so that's something that we have to work and then cutting we have to work hard to try and um find alternatives for food for the subsistence people and 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 stop the market as you were saying through publicity and through um laws for the commercial and of course cutting the forests is another really really serious issue because we're losing habitat um like crazy i went to a um a talk once with Eo Wilson and he said all of you guys patting yourselves on the back saving all these animals what's the point if they've got no habitat Mm-hmm. and yeah. you know, that's a hugely hugely important issue so so first i want to say i'm a firm believer in uh to educate more women we probably solve the majority of the world's problems that they don't think that's a big part of it um and and carry in your in your documentary i i love the part where you brought to light the differences in how women approach the aspect of uh of coaching and they brought this nurturing um uh personality to the process and that that the man that you interviewed sort of overlooked and never realized uh was needed um but so i i i guess i, I want to shift a little bit here and i want to talk about activism itself and how we can bring more activism to the equation and as i was i was watching the film and i was doing research it's it's just tough to watch it's hard for your or psychology to sit through and listen to stories about animals being slaughtered and dying and baby rhinos wailing in the middle uh, you know constantly and it really it, it hurts and it stings and it's hard to sit through and so 
I think that's part of the problem, right? People would rather not think about that on a daily basis than think about it and, and dedicate their lives to it. And so is there any sort of way around this? You know, I think one of the the things that Hung said was, and I think she was paraphrasing somebody else, but the biggest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will save it. Mm-hmm. If you break that sentence down, um, and we sort of touched on this before, you know, we were recording, which is why doesn't anyone act? It can be overwhelming, like you say, seeing all of those graphic pictures. But I think when you speak to people one-on-one and they say, what can I do? Because I think they feel like they've got to get their jobs up and they have to go to Africa or they go volunteer in Africa. But when you give it to people in bite-size, uh, ability to help in just a bite-size, say, look, okay, well, you're a graphic designer and you love animals and you want to help. So look out for your local nonprofit and ask if you can do graphic design for them. You know, you are actually helping their problem because you are speaking to awareness and it's the awareness that ultimately when it reaches it, that people will end up hopefully not buying it. Can I jump in here? What, what happened to me when I very first started? Because I started seeing all these injured animals, trunks, elephants with their trunks cut off and awful, awful, awful injuries, legs cut off, um, necks almost severed. And I, that's when I decided to do something. And the, the impact, the, the um, reaction I got from everybody is, oh, and you'll never make a difference. You can't make a difference. This is how it is. And the drivers would go the other direction when they'd see a zebra with a leg hanging by a thread or an elephant without a trunk, where they tell people that that's how the elephant's trunk was supposed to be, or a crocodile ate it, or it lost it in the branch of a tree. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, when I started, I had no support whatsoever. Still don't get much from any, you know, from the government or anything, but it was just, um, you can't make a difference. And I just happened to be made at something that said, well, at least I'll try. And if I don't make a difference, then so be it. But I, you know, my work has made a huge difference in the Mara, which I'm very proud to say. But I think that's the attitude too. People are scared to start because they don't know how people, other people will react. And it was tough to begin with because you get a lot of people that are not liking what you're doing because you're interfering with them. So, I think there's also, you know, the opportunity pre- to present attainable goals where people feel yeah. like, you know, one with the sale of one yeah. coffee, you can help this elephant on a day-to-day basis, like, and give some hope for the end result. Because I yeah. think from the zoomed out perspective, it is overwhelming and it's hard to know where to right. dig in or what your impact is going to be. So it's like breaking it down to the more minutia, like a, a way that's, you know, attainable for the everyday person. And then that grows and people feel good about what they're doing. And then you see the impact, I think, with time. And I don't think the ripple effect, like, for instance, if Anne hadn't started to do what she did 20 years ago, you know, she would not have, I wouldn't have found her and been able to film her. And the people who've seen the film now, hundreds of thousands of people who can now see Anne's work, you don't know who you touch. I mean, Hmm. like I said, I met most of these women through the film, but last night, Kelly and I were just chatting. Um, You know, we like to help each other. It's the way that women work. It's like, you know, oh, do you know somebody here? Do you know somebody here? You know, I think it was Anne that introduced me to Rabia, who's in the film. You know, there is that ripple effect of sometimes instead of thinking like, oh, my God, it's so overwhelming. What what could my little contribution do anyway? If, if you took everything else off and just said, well, I'm going to do this one thing. And then you look back and you've done like a 100 things over a year. And then you don't know the trail of how that's rippled out to other people exactly. that you've inspired. 
I think there's a lot to be said for that. You know, just a little thing you do and then the people around you see you doing it and thinking, well, I do. he could do it, I could do it. And, you know, suddenly you get to the tipping point and that's the ideal, right? You get to the tipping point and everything changes. Exactly, yep. And I want to make sure that Nikki, especially because you guys are a travel podcast, right? I want to make sure that Nikki gets to uh, touch on something that's very, very important. Um, I consider myself a Keystone species girl. Um, (laughs) They're such important parts uh, to biodiversity and desertification and how they affect that. So I love all, all Keystone species, right? And I think this is really important for Nikki to touch on on the Asian elephant side of things because one of the biggest things that shocks me every single summer is everyone who goes to Thailand and rides an elephant. Yeah. So what's the easiest thing you can do? Like, Nikki, I want you to, to talk about this. It's <laughs> list, you know, Instagram moment where people go, they think the elephants are indigenous to Asia and like, this is what they're here to do without realizing this whole backstory of what goes on and how they're actually there for this to be the case. And it is systemic abuse of these elephants where, you know, and this is another generational thing. This is what the this it's the locals that are actually, you know, making the profit on this on on the elephants abuse. And so they they force breed um, these captive elephants. They take the babies away from their mothers. They bring them into the jungle and they beat them for days on end. A lot of them don't survive this process. It's called uh, the Pajan. Um, it's called the crush box. And from there, they, you know, they string up their limbs and they beat them into submission to the point where they lose their spirits and they have nothing left to give except for this fear that's been instilled. And that is how they are able to be ridden. And, um, you know, they're, they're owned and they are chained up all day long until it's time for them to work. And then they are at the subject of their owners and they're fed when, you know, it's time, you know, when their shifts are over and their lives are, you know, just focused on on this. And so that's what, so Lex Shiler, which is very, you know, and there's also no uh, government imputa- implementation on any kind of animal rights in in Asia, in Thailand specifically. Um, so Lek is fighting very hard because it's back to that. It's like, so where is this going to come from? Where there's this change? Um, because it's taught, you know, generation upon generation, this is how it works for the elephants here. And um, so there is education happening, um, but we, you know, as far as us as the tourists, we are the ones that are responsible for this because the, the demand stops then you know, where do we go from here? And so we can still, you know, it's, and it's also back to the point of there is no land for them anymore either. So there, you know, there's a major, there are 3,500 elephants in captivity in Thailand, and there are less than 3,000 in the wild. And they're on, they're, you know, designated to very small areas where they are fighting for, you know, their, their land and places to find food. And, so it's just a cyclical cycle and it's learning that we have the control to, you know, put an end to it. It's mm-hmm. each of us. Especially that, yeah, we've touched up on that too. That, um, you know, if you're traveling through Asia and you're on top of the mountain or you're touching a tiger, something's wrong. Yeah. You're not, you're not supposed yeah. to be able to touch these animals. And I think it's important mm-hmm. to, um, prior to doing it to reflect on, on the situation and, and just critically think about it. Uh, is this something that is is natural? Would you be able to touch a tiger 
in any, under any other circumstance or, or go up to an elephant and jump on its back. So I think that's why it, people are interested in it, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. But, I think, you know, I mean, you really, when you understand the Pajan, it, it literally means to kill one's spirit. That's what it translates to, right? And Lek has done an incredible job with the Saddle Off program. What she's been trying to go around to these different trekking camps is to teach them that you can just go and watch them, you know, and to teach the, the camp, the owners, like, there will be tourists who just want to come and hang out and watch the elephant and walk through the forest with them. You don't need to ride them. Mm -hmm. She, um, uh, I love the movie Love and Bananas because it comes down to um, elephants can be like tree trained like dogs, you know, you could, you know, have them come. You don't need a bullhook. You don't need a slingshot. You don't need to be um, torturing them for them to work. And it really is torture. They'll tell lies like, uh, you know, oh, you see an elephant and it has all these scars, the pink the pink on their head, that isn't natural. That's a scar tissue from a bull hook going in and leaving a wound, right? Uh, and they'll say, oh, that's just like a different species, a different, you know, part of the family. And and it's not it's not good. I also want Nikki just to touch on a really incredible project that's been born out of COVID um, where something I'm not sure if even I've been told, I'm not sure if Lek under, really understood this, but the families of the Karen Hill tribes are the ones who actually are, are given these uh, handed down familial, familially, these elephants, and they are essentially also leased to that um, uh, uh, tourist trekking camp. And when COVID hit, they were like, oh, we don't have the money now to feed these elephants. Here, here, Karen Hill tribe that can't afford this very expensive edible, you know, here, take it back. And hence you have a bunch of elephants starving right now. Um, it has provided an opportunity for Lek to be able to teach them, you know, they, uh, uh, here, let me, let me give you, it's, it's pro provided a pause for her to be able to influence them in a different way. However, mm -hmm. I really want Nikki to talk about, um, about the project that's happening because of the amount of elephants that are suffering at the, that's this moment. Yeah. So because they're the majority of elephants are captive in Thailand, um, with the, you know, with COVID coming to, into play, the borders were closed and they are now left with their elephants in captivity and no way to feed them. Um, and the majority of them are rented from these families. They're passed down by generations. Um, so there has been this movement where there's, a lot of them have had to go back to their families and the families that cannot afford to feed them. So LEC has started a program, um, of essentially a foster program through Trunks Up and there is a, a sister program called Gentle Giants that is helping to, bring food into the communities and help support these elephants back in their natural, um, you know, in their homes and, and provide for these families as well to help, um, you know, feed them and also bring funds back into the communities. And she has been lobbying for, you know, plots of land so that they can grow their own food. And so we have seen this moment as kind of like, like Kelly said, it's a pause where we can reassess, you know, this whole, pro this process and try to imagine new ways and take this moment to re-educate. These elephants don't have to be in captivity being ridden. And so we're also offering this opportunity for these camp owners who have, you know, some of them have 50 to 70 elephants. They cannot no longer feed them. We are offering support to these camps to then, if they're willing to come on board and transition into a sustainable model, which is what LEC has presented Elephant Nature Park 
these elephants are free. They are not ridden. They are not touched. You can go there and you can stay for the week and you can volunteer and witness to help feed them and create their food. And it changes people's lives and it changes people's perspectives. And that's why I'm here because I had like Kelly, I had a life changing experience there. And, um, so we are allowed, you know, we're presenting this opportunity through, um, you know, just, so we are through the trunks of foster program. We are supporting these elephant owners who are willing to move to a sustainable model. And that is when the borders open back up, they promise they will still stay on this path to allowing their elephants off chain, not going back to the elephant rides. And, um, with time, you know, they will, Lek will move in with her teams and train them, retrain how they treat their animals. And, you know, with time and with support, this can have a very long lasting impact on the way that these captive elephants live their lives. Yeah, and it's all that. education, all education, it's all education. Yeah. You know, they need to understand, okay, you know, they're very used to using bull hooks. They need to understand and trust. No, we can do this a different way. And I want to make sure, is it trunksupla.org? where it they can go official it started trunks up la it's trunks up. it's trunks up okay trunksupofficial.org and the cool thing is um for anyone listening you can go there you can sponsor an elephant at the moment they really need help you know for 50 bucks whatever you can um you can send them a cake an elephant cake uh that's super fun um that's you know um oatmeal watermelon cantaloupe whatever it is they make it into a little cake and you can you can see and it's just such a great way to support because i'm telling you these elephants are really they're going starving and again as with africa it's a natural resource right so for thailand this is a natural resource they need with tourism people want to go and see the elephants you want to teach them not to ride the elephants but they need their elephants to stay alive in thailand uh, so people will come so if you can go and help and support um, an elephant, keep them alive so that when the borders do open up, you have something to go and see and enjoy when you can travel there. And I, I just wanted to touch on this because it speaks to um, what Nikki and, and Kelly have all said, and that is how do you hold up um, a successful model of how to retrain a, a thought process? And in Rwanda, I had to interview a poacher. I knew I had to do it for the film, and I kept putting it off. I kept putting it off because I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to be judgmental. I didn't think I'd be any good at it. I was really fortunate in that I was invited to come and speak to a reformed poacher who was in his 80s. And in Rwanda, it's at the base of Varanga, um, Volcanoes Mountain, sorry, um, this group of reformed poachers, now they were forest poachers, so they literally lived in the forest and they hunted elephants, they hunted the gorillas, they hunted the buffalo that were there, and they, they would sell it to um, tourists that came in and make, make, they wouldn't make a fortune, but it was, that was, that was generations how they existed. So now what they do is that they have a beautifully formed village when you go there, and when you are, you are welcomed into that village, and you go around several huts, and in every hut, they teach you about their history, where they came from, um, you know, who their ancestors were and how they got to where they are. And at the very last hut, you can buy all of their crafts. This has been so successful that none of them hunt anymore. None of them poach. They have co-opted this village to 13 other areas in Rwanda to the point that non-poachers want to join their villages and they're not allowed because you have to have been a reformed <laughs> poacher. The whole point of it. Oh, but, wow. But the, but the gift <laughs> of it is that they now are landowners these, these men and women are landowners. They have 
tribes where they talk about how the community profits from anything left over. I think they put, I'm guessing because I can't remember now, but it's something like 10% of everything that they earn goes in the pot. And that money at the end of the month, they all meet and decide how that should be spent. So Harry over there doesn't have like part of his roof's missing. So should we take that and mend Harry's hut? Great idea. Let's do that. Um, and that's how they work together. So I asked them, it's been so successful. Has anyone re- resorted to poaching again? And one man had. I said, how did the community deal with that? And they all took him to task, put him in the middle. And the wife, <laughs> the wife took him to task and said, you're not coming back to the family if you don't reform. So he was contrite. He was allowed to come back in again. And he's never had a misstep since. But I think what that does is that um, that program took an amazing man, Edwin Subaru, to come in. He's a Rwandan man. I think he was educated in England or America. I, I can't remember. But he lived with the forest poachers for two years until they trusted him enough where he had this idea that he wanted to introduce, but they had to trust him first. Mm-hmm. And it's wildly successful. And nothing's been taken away from the, that community. They've just been encouraged to go back to their crafts, you know, and their their um wood making and bead making and then the tourists buy that and the tourists come in with their cameras so it you know there it's easy to doom and gloom the whole thing but there are very successful programs that could be um that could be uh spread throughout africa in every area you know slowly but again it's both education and then having a success model to show up for it and if the forest really demand a sustainable option then that speaks volumes because then the money that you know then that's where the profit is and that's where they will respond at the yeah. end of the day you know they these are native people trying to survive and you know so i think at the end of the day money definitely has the impact yeah so yeah, i think speaks- yeah go ahead kelly no go ahead oh i was just gonna say it speaks again to how important like ann's projects are is because in a lot of places they would rather do something else they would rather do something else you know I went on on a, a raid. We did two arrests of poachers, um, each one with python. And uh, uh, in Zimbabwe, a python ar- uh, arrest is a mandatory nine years. You know, so they're really risking a lot when they do that. Um, and you know, with what Anne is doing, um, she's focusing a lot on the women. But I mean, they would rather they would rather do something else that's not going to land them in jail. So um, it's providing those that's, opportunities. Yeah. I, I just right. finished the pod. Anne, will you? Okay. No, yeah. Sorry. Oh, sorry, sorry. sorry. Well, yeah. What, one of the things I was going to say was that um, we were talking about how, how it's successful, and actually Nikki went back and touched on it. A lot of it is by example, and you just have to be, be there and be doing it and not expect anything in return, and they watch you and they see you. And I had one um, one of my team members, Maasai team members, he shook his head to me, this is a few years back, and he said, Anne, what you've taught us is compassion because they have no room for compassion in their lives. And what, we are, what we're all driven by is compassion because we have that luxury. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that that's a really important point that they, you know, we have to be good examples and, and just do what we believe in and then people will follow without being told. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about ways that people can help, and I want to really hone in on anybody listening that wants to actually support in the smallest ways they can. I think Nikki through Trunks Up and Anne, your fund are two great ways. Uh, What other ways, like I know I've been a part of World Wildlife since I was like six years old. 
and my family has always donated, but is there uh, other funds, other resources, like in maybe an aggregated source that we can like search through and find ways to support like anti-poaching efforts or sanctuaries for elephants and other animals? Well, I have to jump in here and say you can become a member of Over and Above Africa, and then okay. we do all of that. There we go. That's what I wanted to know. And also, what we do for free, you know, to make it fully transparent. And as a filmmaker, the only thing we require of our where we give our money is that they send us the footage of our money being spent, and then I turn it into a film, like a little mini documentary, and then we share that with our members and donors, so they literally see their money having an effect on the ground at ground zero. So it's this beautiful circle and we are, our entry level is five bucks a month. <laughs> wow. That's great. <laughs> I, I really love that. I love open or above Africa because I'm a big fan of really supporting grassroots organizations that don't have a ginormous overhead where the money is really going to those on the ground who really need it. So I'm a fan of that. Um, the I, the organization I worked with, the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, is IAPF.org. I know that's a mouthful. <laughs> um, currently, I'm supporting uh, Rabia Hawa's work with Ulinzi Africa Foundation in uh, Kenya. You can also go, I'm just going to toss this out there, um, a good friend of mine, Shannon Elizabeth, um, actress, some people listening might know her from American Pie. She has now set up the, the Shannon Elizabeth Foundation. She actually moved to South Africa. She does quite incredible work and if you go to her um i was a big fan this past summer she started the ranger relief fund uh that was born out of covid because um you had we had a, a tourism and Anne can also talk to the, about this uh, the lack of tourism in africa right now we didn't have those armchair eyes serving as unofficial uh rangers and and mm. you know that's one of the reasons why poaching became so critical is um you know tourism is, is a big aspect of that so if you go to shannon elizabeth foundation.org uh you can find the ranger relief fund uh that has helped keep some uh outfits employed and rangers in the field patrolling which is just so crucial um and she has other projects that she's supporting like care for wild different uh rhino orphanages things like that so that's a good yeah. resource as well wonderful and, and, and Anne, Anne, do you want to talk about yours um, i know that you already did but <laughs> yeah. um well of course i'm always um open to any support because it's not easy to keep things going particularly as an individual uh, like myself, um, my organization is annktaylorfund.org, and I'm so grateful to be supported by so many wonderful people and organizations. Without which I couldn't, I couldn't survive. I mean, I could survive, but I couldn't keep the, the project going. And I'll have to say, this year in the COVID year, people have been doubly generous to me. So I thank everybody for all of that um, because they know how. I'm also, by the way, in the travel business. So um, the I do the business and I have the projects. So the business, of course, died um, overnight in early March. And the safari business, travel business just died overnight. And so this last year has been incredibly stressful trying to keep my, my, my patrol team going, trying to keep the women going, trying to keep everything um, on track. But so far, thank God, I've been able to do it. And only thanks to everybody who is generous enough to support me. So Anybody who wants to, that's terrific. And every penny gets put in the field. I don't take a penny myself. And it just all gets to where it's supposed to be. And anybody who wants to come to the Mara to see it, you're very welcome. I hope uh, you highly recommend it. Yes. <laughs> I, I want to reiterate that the links will be in the show notes too. So if you're listening to this, it's very, very uh, 
easy to act, easy to access. Yeah. All right. So can we stay in line with COVID for a second? Um, Carrie, before the show, you mentioned that you wanted to get into zootropic diseases. So, yeah, well, you had mentioned that, you know, what was our sort of, how, how do we end this? Like, because poaching will never end. That's, that's just yeah. unfortunate. It just won't ever end. So my utopia is a world where we have sanctioned places where only, and this goes for marine life too, but it's sanctioned forever, meaning no new government can come in and overturn it. Like the United Nations for animals and have a place where they can thrive. Um, what happens when we don't do that is we get COVID and we get SARS and we get MERS and we get the list is endless, you know, because, because those diseases jump from animal to human. And the only reason they do that is because we are interacting with wildlife that we should not, we should just leave them well alone. That's, I would just love that. I don't know if that's even possible, but I would love that. I'm going to just toss, can I just toss this in? This is bringing in a, a little bit of a different subject. as much subject. as you want, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think it's really important. People wonder why you have so many people in the animal world talking about plant-based diets and veganism. And it is, um, there's a couple of reasons why it is so important. Um, not just you're not eating animals, but causing that jump that, that Carrie just talked about. Um, you know, bushmeat, as Anne had talked about, is is spiked right now. But guess what? Bushmeat, um, the illegal trade of bushmeat, not only then is affecting uh, the animals in the wild, but that's where um, that jump is happening. And I'll just say also, uh, you know, one of the other in, in, term, in illegal logging, uh, so many issues, but cattle grazing is mm -hmm. huge. So if with the loss of habitat, if you have all these the illegal cattle grazing coming onto huge swaths of land that's supposed to be conservancies, that's supposed to be protected land for these animals to, to uh, live on, um, you have cattle grazing going on because that's supporting, right, our, our meats, you know, you, you have to have lots of cattle. The thing is, it's encroaching on their space. So um, and then you have human wildlife conflict. So we just, we've had a lot of issues with that right now where, um, where, uh, of course these illegal cattle came onto the land. And of course, what's a lion going to do? A lion's going to eat, right? That's it. But then you have a whole population that's getting that they just want to kill the lions because they don't understand, right? So I just wanted to toss that in there because when you have a lot of these animal activists, you know, shouting to the rooftops about plant-based plant diets, there really is a, a very important link. And it's very, I'm, I'm sort of uh, voicing it in a very rudimentary way for your audience, you know, hopefully, because I know it's going to cause a lot of eye rolls. But I what I really want people to know is that even just doing a meatless Monday is going to have a huge impact yeah. on the other side of the world that you're not, um, you know, you might you might not totally get it yet. But but if you just do that, it really actually is going to make a huge impact. <laughs> yeah. I just had to toss that in there. No, I appreciate that. And I, I think that actually leads <laughs> us into our hoorah question. So at, at, for all of our travel around tables, we have one question that kind of brings the conversation to a close and tries to sum it up in a way with a, a bit of a discussion. So the question is, uh, and Kelly touched on this a little bit, and I'm going to expand on it, is that our population is ever growing, right? We doubled in population in the last 25 years from three and a half billion to now over 8 billion. 
And the major growth has been in developing countries that have the most interaction with wildlife. I mean, Europe has already lost a lot of its megafauna and Asia, specifically India and China, still has a decent amount of megafauna, but they're also losing it. And Africa is arguably the Africa and South America have probably the two largest uh, diverse, most diverse ecosystems and with the largest animals. Africa and those other developing countries are going to continue to grow in population and continue to develop and modernize. And with that comes the additional consumption of material goods, the additional consumption of land to farm. So with all of this happening, is this going to impact the animal poaching or animal conservation in a positive way or negative way. And with that, there's also the educational aspect that comes with modernization. So I know there was a lot there, but in short, modernization and in developing countries, will it help or hurt? Nikki, let's start with you. Um, I think that in, well, in Asia specifically, um, I'm hoping that modernization will help in terms of just education and ways that they can, they can help, um, you know, work with the land. And also for the government to then, in, you know, implement more designated areas where these elephants can actually live because of the human elephant conflict is such a huge risk for you know, the surviving wild elephant population, which is minute uh, in Thailand, I'm hoping that, you know, as this continues to grow, there's more education that comes and then they will, they'll, their land will be given back to them in some whatever reasonable way, because it's not even really on the radar at the moment. So that's my optimistic, you know, take on it. Um, realistically, I'm not sure if, if that's, you know, part of the future, but we can hope. Mm-hmm. Social media, is there a general agreement that younger people are more interested in conserving the environment than previous generations? Is that something that yeah, I think that's definitely... Yeah. Oh, I would I would disagree 100%. I would oh, say... Really? <laughs> I would disagree. I, I think that had we had social media a couple generations ago, absolutely that would have been the case. But somewhere between then and the Kardashians, Ray, and I, I don't mean to, to slam on the Kardashians, but what I mean is that to be able to make the kind of careers that they have made on these vapid selfies, yeah. that that is that has and, and the school and the peer pressure at school to be of the same as the you know yeah hippest celebrity. Know, at the same time, I'm really inspired by younger kids. My my friend's daughter Abby is a huge environmentalist, and that's she's 13, and that's all inspired from Greta. Mm-hmm. You know, so I I think it's actually, Carrie, I hear what you're saying, but I almost feel like the 20 year olds and under, um, they're very engaged. And I'm really impressed by that. And that gives me hope. I hope um, that's okay. I haven't seen that. So all of our members, um, like our database is like over 6,000 now. And the, the median age is 40. I wish I that we could re- maybe we just haven't reached that generation. Oh, maybe it's just generation capitalized. I feel like they're ready to take on the world. They're not. They're not seeing no as an option. They're like all hands on, you know, on deck. And I, you know, I do feel like the conservation, you know, issues are very much on the forefront right now. And so I think it's becoming. That's how I do. I think that they're 
there's sort of this urgency with younger generations that are like, hey, this is our, our planet, and it kind of left us yeah. a, a burning ball in outer space. Like, we need to take this back because the data that's what they, I mean they're inheriting what we created for them and that sucks yeah. but really what can they do I mean it's like we're if, if it's such a huge question I mean it should be a show on its own because it's such a brilliant question to be, to be housed that way which is ultimately because I think about, you know, I think about in the future this planet can't sustain the growth we all know that but it was like what 20 years ago when, when Al Gore said you know with the inc- inconceivable truth like with 20 years later, what do we really do? We certainly had the warning. Well, we have the yeah. warning now. It's like we're lemmings off of a cliff. And I, I know this kind of, I'm actually more of a Pollyanna than I'm not. But when you stand back and look at it, it's, you know, we don't, these kids are not empowered to do anything because the people who are empowered are not doing anything. Yep. Yeah. Or can not I, doing enough, I should say. Can I jump, can yeah. I jump in here? Yeah. Can yeah, I, yeah. Do we have time? Yeah. We um, have as much time as we want. Okay. <laughs> um, what, I, what I'd like to do, um, what I'd like to say here is because of my business being the tourist business, uh, travel business, you know, what I do when they come to Kenya, I always bring them to the Mara and we expose them to our work um, in the schools, in the pro- in all the various projects I have. And most of my clients, well, 100% of my clients are American families and we often do multiple, multiple generational trips. And what I found is that they, when they see the project, which is not always possible, people are, the children are incredibly engaged. Mm-hmm. And so they've gone, I've had 10 year olds, 11 year olds, 12 year olds, um, come back to America, start making jewelry, sell the jewelry, give the money for the schools or whatever, or the anti-poaching work we do. And others go and do a, um, I had a little girl from Australia who put together a whole PowerPoint, which I can't even do, as you can imagine, I can't get on through. So, <laughs> so she put she put together a PowerPoint and raised you know raised three hundred dollars. So I think you know to engage them, you know that's the challenge is to to engage, somehow engage yeah. them so that they can see it and understand it and see how African school children, my kids go. You know, I've got a thousand children in the schools that I built, and they walk to school. They have no food unless I provide it. They have no uniforms unless I provide it they you know and an American child coming into that situation they're blown away and I always make them talk to the school children and they the children talk to them back and from that aspect I've had huge support from young people and mm. you know very dedicated support but I think to engage them is very difficult because as you say um, Carrie everything is you know there's so much that is so vapid and the principles are all wrong and the whole you know the whole in, in, import of uh, of society in general has been skewed. Mm-hmm. So I just yeah, wanted to I give do. a positive trend, a positive trend because you know I had nothing yeah. but support from from the people that see the project in action. Okay. Yeah, because the, the idea of modernization is, you know, I think in this country we're going to think about it in terms of technology and things like that. There's very rudimentary, fundamental um, issues that face. Africa. And that's why I I love, again, I love what Anna is doing. And it is going to come down to, in a lot of ways, the empowerment of women. And why is that? Um, Exactly what you just said, um, with the decrease, with the loss of habitat, um, an increase in population, ultimately, really, I kind of believe, unfortunately, these animals are only going to survive on protected land. 
it's just going to happen. It's just, it's just a, it's something we have to deal with. And so, um, you know, the empowerment of women, you know, I've been researching a project that I'm really excited about um, that's going to span with a lot of different uh, uh, women's issues, but one of them being is really discussing family planning. You know, mm -hmm. um, we have to empower women to be able to make the choice of, of when they're going to have a family or not, um, and not just honestly have them be sort of receptacles for men that then pump out a lot of children without them being in control of that, you know, and that's, that's why that that is going to be a, a key component education empowerment of women. Um, and, you know, connecting those dots, but to your to your question in terms of modernization, it's such an interesting way to put it, you know, um, <laughs> I think for an American audience, you know, it gives you this idea of technology and buildings built. And we're still really trying to conquer some very simple mm -hmm. issues first. Yeah. Yeah. And go for it, Anne. Did you have something to I'd forgotten what I was going to say now. I got all excited about it. <laughs> um, oh, the, the, the women, the women. That's, that, that's yeah. you know, a, a large part, as, as Kelly said, while I do a lot of stuff, I try and do it for men, women, and children. But for the women, what I've seen is um, in part by empowering them, it's given them confidence to stand up to the men. And when I'm giving um, cultural or you're not allowed to teach sex education in Kenya schools, so I, I do it in workshops um, when I deliver the, the sanitary pads, we do workshops on health, hygiene, and sex. And so we're actually getting the message across. And a couple of years ago, um, I was at the school, the first school I built came first in the district in the examinations, in the whole district exam. So I was given the microphone and I thought, okay, can I, what can I do now? Can I have the courage to talk about this very subject? So of course I did. And everybody was, <laughs> was wiggling in their chairs. Um, because I talked about early, early marriages, the kids get, the children get married off at 10, 11, 12 years old. Wow. They, they're impregnated at 10, 11 years old by old men. Um, they're bought as second, third wives. This is the culture that I'm working with. So I addressed all those subjects and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to get a spear in me because the Maasai are very fierce and, and women, as I say, don't have much say, but they think I'm kind of a man. They're not sure what I am. But anyway, <laughs> so my, 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 my nickname down there is Old Steel. <laughs> so, you can imagine. so after, after I, I spoke, all the men followed and they all talked about the early marriages and how terrible it was to have sex with, with girls that didn't even have breasts, how this, 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 wow. and this. So yeah. I think that it's changing, wow, but it just takes a, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time yeah. to change. And they have no rights. And the girls, you know, they have no, the girls particularly have no rights whatsoever. And so that's what I'm trying to do in a slow way. It's been 20 years. It'll probably be another 20 years if I live that long <laughs> so, <laughs> to get it yeah. to, to change completely. But it's changing. It is changing slowly, slowly. It's a very difficult culture to work with when they've been, you know, so embedded and they're not really um, open to a lot of suggestions. But just, you know, just by doing it and doing it and doing it and repeating it and being really strong about the subject, hopefully it'll change in my lifetime. Hmm. Thank you for giving me the time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Anne, for what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. Carrie, what are your thoughts on modernization? 
Well, I'm thinking we haven't talked about lab-created meat, right? Like, like in terms of super modernization, you could think about what could be created in labs because it's not sustainable what we naturally grow to, as you said, I don't know, if eight billion. That's terrifying. Um, and then, you know, then you have things like diseases like COVID coming in and taking two million of us out. Like the planet itself is going to have a say in, in what happens in modernization. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something in the human psyche that doesn't like to acknowledge. It's a big, huge denial. We don't like to acknowledge the fact that we are creating our own destruction and we're not doing anything about it. And you think at this point in our um, evolution that we would be stopping. So I'm always, again, back to Rwanda because after the genocide, so many men were slaughtered that it's now basically run by women. And on the fourth Sunday, every Sunday, between 8 a.m. and midday, every single person in Rwanda has to, and the, from the president down, has to stop and pick up litter. Now, that's awesome. When you go there, it's the cleanest, neatest country. But think about what that means as a community. Like, I'm no better than you because I am the president. We are all one and we all love our country. I think of that as modernization. I know it wow. seems kind of archaic. Yeah, well, so. yeah. I like Amazing. that. I love yeah. that. I, you know, and I just want to like, be, I just want to touch and toss out there that I hope everyone listening watches a life on their on this planet. It's David Attenborough's um, most recent film that just came out at the end of last summer, the beginning of the fall, right? Yeah. And um, and it, he in just an hour and a half, he so beautifully connects all of these dots. And it's a little overwhelming for the first 45, 50 minutes because it's a smidge depressing, honestly. But then it takes a turn and he presents, um, it, it sort of, I, it, it occurred to me from what you just said, Carrie, he presents these solutions. And I think it is a critical, critical film for all of us to watch so that people that don't understand how all these dots connect um, can get it yeah. right i saw you guys nodding your head yeah. like well, you guys have both watched yeah. it right yeah it's written so beautifully yeah. right we, and it does on a note of hope like okay i can make a yeah. difference yeah. And right. it, you know you want to start the very next day it's like okay i'm going i'm going to do my piece of this to start moving in this direction yeah. we actually just yeah. talked about it uh an hour earlier today yeah we did a podcast earlier <laughs> no way. yeah yeah and and Essentially, it boiled down to providing opportunity, and the opportunity would in turn, or, or education would in turn provide opportunity, and therefore, you know, it, it, it would branch out and solve a lot of problems. Um, yeah, yeah. That's really what it boils down to. Yeah, thinking outside the box, you know, and what he presents is, you know, working with nature instead of against it. And there are yeah, so absolutely. many solutions that, you know, if we can work with the natural cycle of the natural world, it'll be great. You know, we can solve these things. Unfortunately, man is just exploiting and, you know, being a little too out of control at the moment. But there is hope. There is hope. Yeah, and and, all right, and maybe coming back a minute from the social media question yeah. that we kind of got into a little bit where we had a little bit of a disagreement, David Attenborough, <laughs> in promotion of that in promotion of that documentary, created an Instagram page, and it was the yeah. it was, his Instagram yeah. page was the quickest to reach one million followers. So yeah. he set the yeah. record for it. Wow! And yeah. I mean, I think that's it was previously held by like Jennifer Aniston, 
and he beat Jennifer Aniston. And wow. that, I think that's, that's a testament lot. to something right there. Yeah, they're both awesome. I mean, that's incredible. That's just incredible. Yeah. You know, I love that he says, this is my witness statement, you know, because he, if you think about it, you know, he's one of the first, he and Jane Goodall were the first people to introduce all of us to wildlife. And he literally has watched over the, what, last well, I guess his 70 years, um, he's watched the destruction and the decline. And I totally, see, I agree with you. And may, I really do think it's the younger kids, Carrie. Um, they do give me hope because they are thinking outside the box. And, and as you also said, they are, I don't want to say they're angry that, of what they've been handed, but I think they certainly recognize that they're being given a world that is out of whack and they need to take control. Imagine growing up uh, as a 16-year-old in 2020, and it started off with Australia wildfires, then Brazilian yeah. wildfires, and then COVID. And yeah. I mean... They are seeing tumultuous. Like it's yeah, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, and so I agree. Like it's probably twenty and younger. That's that's the feeling I get. Obviously, well, listen, it doesn't matter what we do. If that next generation and (laughs) if they don't do anything, it doesn't matter what we do. It's all for nothing. So I, I, when I said that, I believe that. You know, when you say Greta, who was amazing, and you know, you think that that just that she was able to capture the globe's attention when there's so much noise, but this little, I was she 12 years old then at the time or something that she was able to do that. And I'm not saying that kids don't care. I think they do care. I think they're helpless to do anything. Mm -hmm. And therefore they're not a part of the conversation in any meaningful way, but they need to be. And the people who are able to do anything are not interested enough. Um, One of the things, this is kind of apropos of nothing. Except that when somebody is, um, let's, Kelly, you touched on this earlier, which is that the nouveau riche Asians are now displaying the rhino horn. So it used to be that you wouldn't display it because that was way, you know, all too, too brazen, you know, but I have it here. You can snort it. Now they do. It's brazen and you can display it. But what if you actually try to also with the awareness of that it has no value medicinally, but you were also saying, just how many Lamborghinis do you want that crime boss to own? Because mm-hmm. you're giving yeah. your money to him. And in the meantime, that jump between him getting that money and you having a horn for one party to show off to your friends is really that our planet is devastated. Like it just gets completely demolished because, and we have all touched on this, is that every single being on this planet is connected to each other. Yeah. And it might be six degrees and it might not be, but where every action I take will impact one of you at some point in its iteration. So so bringing it back to your own behavior, if I buy this, that man gets, I buy a wheel on a Lamborghini of a guy who probably has 12. Um, if you just put a little bit of thought into your action, you know, even your trash, dumping your trash out, it's like, I dump my trash every two weeks. I don't do it every week. You know, that's my contribution. I think, well, I, I think the message yeah. is changing too. Like previously the message was save the planet and it was, it was sort of the idea was the planet itself, the animals and the environment. But now I feel like there is this this change, this shift in ideology where it's not save the planet, it's save our species, save yeah. ourselves. Yeah, humanity. And we're mm-hmm. understanding that we are deeply tied to the planet in, in, in a multitude of ways instead of us being, you know, a, a separate entity that's yeah. just occupied. Mm-hmm. Why is Elon Musk <laughs> trying to put a, a whole community on Mars and not, he's the richest man in the world now. 
Yeah. And he's an ecologist, like he's a green man. Why is he not using all of that intellect to save our planet, which is gorgeous? So the one thing that I would say that I, I hope would happen with that, and my understanding of his philosophy to an extent, is that you could essentially, if he is able to colonize Mars and then mine asteroids, it would eliminate the need for us to mine on planet Earth. And you could essentially start zoning you could zone planet Earth as residential, and then industrial can take place on Mars or the moon, and mining for minerals and uh, metals can be done in asteroids. And so, obviously, that's not something that we could see, but if he's taking that first step to it eventually spiral into the zoning of planet Earth as residential and us bringing it back to the beautiful green planet that it is, maybe he saves humanity in, in a different route than... I can't yeah. see those big guys giving up their mineral rights here on planet Earth. And <laughs> yeah, well, well yeah. by that time, it'll be the younger generation in control. So I think maybe maybe I'm giving the billionaire maybe yeah maybe I'm giving the billionaire too much credit. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's yeah. There's a, there's a really cool uh, scientist by the name of Michio Kaku, and he's Japanese and. Uh, a few years ago, he got his claim to fame for his civilization, planetary civilization theory, and that, you know, there are different levels of civilization and that right now humans are at like level zero and level one is like being able to control the weather and level two or three is a planetary civilization where we're, you know, inhabiting other planets. And he thinks we're like one of the most primitive potential <laughs> species right now. But I think to Bob's point, it would be really great if we were able to zone Earth as residential. And just like, and, but who knows? That's very still, interesting. That's centuries away. I don't know. Yeah. 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 That's like taking this in a whole new direction. Whole direction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's, you know, really people being mindful is so important. And I do love these people who are using their platforms to be able to spread a message. And I mean, I, I just, you know, coming back to these young kids, I do that. Like even Billie Eilish is now gone vegan. And, and frankly, the amount, the huge impact that makes and what Carrie said, it is about changing, you know, cultural mindsets. You know, Wild Aid is fantastic with doing these campaigns with celebrities for awareness. And in the Asian culture, money and celebrity, they, you know, it's so important. It's so important. Like, you know, yeah. they are, see, you can show them as many like dead elephants, you know, hacked off faces as you want. And frankly, like it's really yeah. not going to make that big of a deal. But if you put someone up there and, and they say, Hey, this is wrong. It's going to make a big impact, you know? Yeah. So that's huge. I want to keep it on a, on a hopeful note, you know, mm -hmm. I, I do like, <laughs> you know, there are leaders, people, you know, people, and people get more yeah. mindful and even on social media, on freaking TikTok, you know, you actually can learn some mindful things. It is choosing to be mindful of what you consume and what you watch. But yeah. what were you going to say, Anne? Like, I'm what, inspired, I, you know? Well, what? Again, to be, to be hopeful, I'm going. I'm not talking about children now, but what I have seen since I started the project was the change in attitude of the Maasai, who are ultimately in charge of the wildlife, and now they are all taking an interest. In the old days, if an elephant was before my, you know before I started working, if a baby elephant was found, they would slaughter it and feed it to their dogs. Now they call us to save it, to take it to Sheldricks, to 
to be raised. Hmm. Um, they see, you know, they, they, they are behind hmm. everything that I try to do because now they're feeling it and they're seeing it. And to me, that gives me great hope because Kenya is in the hands of the young people. And they're all now, or not all, but most of them are absolutely on the side of conservation and understand the reality. If they lose the animals, what they will lose ultimately, apart from aesthetically, also financially, which is a point I've tried to make all the way through since I started working in the Mara. But to see that change in attitude has been huge to me and very, very encouraging. I think, so I think to, I think to sum up the conversation is that, uh, it, the very, famous Mahatma Gandhi quote is be the change you wish to see in the world. And everybody can, everybody can make a little bit of an impact, whether it's voting, whether it's making a donation, whether it's just doing something. Yeah. Your, your yeah. individual act will help because it adds up with everyone else's yeah, teaching your right. child. Uh, yeah. It doesn't need, you don't need to go above and beyond to teach your own children with the importance of animal conservation. And you don't know the ripple effect that may have. Um, so, yeah, it's just mindfulness and and being aware of, of you know what goes on this planet and how we're tied to it. Yeah, and not getting overwhelmed. I do understand that people get overwhelmed. Oh, there's so many issues. You know, it, what is my one fifteen dollar donation going to make? But I come back. Um, you know, pe people talk about altruistic philanthropy, and people want to know where can I make the biggest impact with my buck. And honestly, I come back to the human trafficking work um, because, listen, human trafficking is so ginormous that you know you it gets overwhelming when it comes there. You aren't going to solve that problem. There are so many people being trafficked. What I always come back to is one. If you save one child, if you if you can impact that child, you have succeeded. And so I would encourage everyone who's listening not to get overwhelmed by every single issue there is and to think that their one act of kindness or mindfulness or you know, whatever, lending themselves to a cause that, to not get overwhelmed and not think that it's not going to make a difference because it is, it absolutely is. So I Very love true. that you said that quote. Yeah. Super true. Do better today than you did yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you all for coming on the show today. This has been incredibly insightful. It's a hard conversation to have, but obviously an incredibly Thank you. For those listening, all of the links that we discussed on the podcast today, again, will be in the show notes. And please uh, check them out. And see, I'm sure you can help in some way, whether regardless of how large or small that, that need is. Uh, thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you all for coming on. Thank you for opening up this discussion. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Thank you for listening. Yeah. <laughs>